This is the Remove the Guesswork podcast. Hello and welcome to the Remove the Guesswork podcast. I'm your host, Leanne Spencer, and it's a solo show this week, and I'm going to be recording on why you shouldn't fear fat. That's dietary fat. And this is really topical because some research has just been published in... um, from the McMaster University in Ontario, Canada. And it was three researchers, Andrew Mente, Meshad Degen, and Victoria Miller, who performed this study. And the the essence of the study is this. There were 135,000 people across five continents um, looked at, and their dietary habits were looked at across seven and a half years. And these were low to middle income people. And what they found was that their diet of moderate intake of fat and fruit and vegetables resulted in a lower risk of death, which goes against a lot of the received wisdom that we've been given over the last two decades about fat and why we should fear it. But this study actually found that people who consumed more fat and less carbohydrate had a lower risk of death. So it's quite a clear message there. And they, it's a long and quite thorough study as well of 135,000 people across seven and a half years. And reading this yesterday, it made me think, We've still got some way to go in terms of of, uh, reducing, of getting rid of the fear that people have around fat. And I think this study should go some way towards doing that. So I wanted to share that with you and also to talk a bit about the background to why we feared fat, why we shouldn't fear it, and why it's an important part of our diet. So I hope you're gonna find this uh, a really interesting and engaging show. So following up from that study then, um, specifically what they looked at were people who consumed three to four servings of fruit, vegetables and legumes per day and they found that all fats so whether it was saturated or polyunsaturated whatever the type of fat was if you consumed three to four servings of fruit veg legumes a day and increased dietary fat you not only had that lower risk of death that reduced mortality but you also had a reduced risk of stroke and there's two aspects to this and this was the the, the findings of the researchers One is that the increased dietary fat had a positive benefit for people's health, so we shouldn't be fearing it, we shouldn't be seeking out low-fat foods. But the other is that in increasing the dietary fat, people are actually consuming less refined carbohydrate, which is the area that really we should be focusing on reducing, not fat. And it isn't really surprising that those researchers came to those conclusions because those findings are very consistent with several observational studies and randomised controlled trials in Western countries over the last two decades. There actually isn't a lot of evidence to suggest that um, reducing fat in your diet is good for health. And we'll come on to some of that later on in the podcast. So, we've been told to cut down on fat. And in fact, if you look at the, the government Eat Well plate, That suggests, and I'll link to that in the show notes, but that suggests that actually a healthy plate of food should be a little over one-third comprised of fruit and vegetables, a little over one-third comprised of starchy carbohydrates, and the remaining 25-30% fish and dairy. And they've got some uh, low-fat margarine spread and some vegetable oil carved into a little niche of that Eat Well plate as well, which is, is quite interesting. Um, Now, if you think about what that might look like on a plate, that is a lot of pasta, bread, um, potatoes, rice, porridge. They're all some of the starchy carbohydrates that are recommended on that Eat Well plate. And that's a huge amount of carbohydrate. There isn't an awful lot of um, of fat on that plate. 
and there's quite a lot of fruit and vegetables, but I don't think the majority of people, certainly the evidence suggests that the majority of people don't consume that amount of fruit and vegetables. I think the average um, consumption is something like three portions a day, which simply isn't enough. I think we need to be five, eight, even 10 portions, depending on your individual requirements. So when you consider that that's what the government's recommending, it's not a wonder that people are eating a diet that just isn't configured for good health. It's not optimized for, for good health. And it certainly isn't a lot of fat on there. So it's tricky because that's what the government is recommending that we do. And even if you follow that, it's still not really matching up with the, the research that McMaster University found and published very recently. Um, they also, on the Government Eat Well plate, uh, advise you that all types of fat are high in energy and should be eaten sparingly. That is true, and we'll come to that later on, but that's the advice. Those kind of fats should be eaten sparingly. Now, of course, the way that you would construct a plate of food, and I'm going to share with you how I construct my plate of food later on in this podcast, but how you would construct your plate of food depends on a number of things. It's very personalised, and the, the area of personalised nutrition is becoming increasingly popular, and rightly so. But it depends on things like the energy balance. So you need to look at how much energy you're expending and, and then balance that against how much energy you're ingesting. So that's an important one. The old outdated calories in versus calories out mode of thinking is, is, is kind of dead in the water really with modern science. However, the principles of an energy balance are still very much valid. We need to have the amount of energy going in, matching the amount of energy going out if we want to maintain a healthy body composition. So that's a big one. Another one is your genes. So uh, an area of, of science that's, that's becoming more and more popular is, is uh, genetic testing for diet and fitness. And your genes will also have a, uh, an influence on the amount of carbohydrate that you can intake, how sensitive you are to carbohydrate, how sensitive you are to saturated fat, for example. So your genetic makeup is going to have a very big bearing on that as well. Your sensitivity to certain things. Uh, that might be allergies to certain food groups or food types. It also could be your sensitivity towards things like saturated fat, carbohydrate. So that needs to be factored in. In conjunction with that energy balance, you also need to think about how active you are. That will have a very, very strong bearing on the types of foods that you have on your plate and the volume of food as well. And lastly, lifestyle. How well you sleep in particular? So sleep uh, has a strong bearing on, on the hormonal profile that in part dictates your, your hunger and your satiety. Um, and obviously that will, will have a strong influence on the amount of food you put on your plate and the amount of food that you eat and you crave. So we know that some of the key hormones are ghrelin and leptin. Ghrelin is the hunger hormone that tells us when we're hungry, it communicates with the brain via the gut-brain access to tell us, I'm hungry, I need to eat, I need energy. And it's leptin, which is the satiety hormone, that tells the brain, I'm full. Switch off the desire to eat, stop eating, I've, I've had enough. And those, those hormones work very, very well when you have um, a good balance, a good energy balance, but also when the body is under minimal amounts of disruption. And that disruption can be caused by things like lack of sleep, as I've just mentioned, but it can also be too much stress. Presence of caffeine, presence of alcohol, presence of drugs, prescription or recreational, um, sugar, all of those things are, are endocrine, hormonal disruptors. And that can have a very strong bearing on types of foods that you crave and equally the types of foods that you'll need. So what we really want to do is keep our body in a, a state of homeostasis, which means balance. So there's lots of things that um, your energy intake is going to depend on. 
and it's worth having a think about your, your levels of activity. Um, I will link in the show notes to a, a blog I wrote recently on why you may not be burning as many calories as you think during exercise and that's definitely worth having a read because I think a lot of people overestimate their energy demands post-exercise or even pre-exercise and end up not losing the weight they want if that's one of their goals through exercise. So I'll link to that in the show notes. But when did fat become public enemy? Well, it comes back to a gentleman called Ansel Benjamin Keyes, who died in 2004. And he was a physiologist and he did some significant work in around the 1940s. And that's when really our attitudes toward dietary fat made a sea change. He hypothesized, the key being the word hypothesized, that saturated fat was the cause of cardiovascular disease and therefore should be avoided. And unfortunately, that piece of work has stuck. I and mean, we've spent the rest of this time trying to get rid of the idea that dietary fat is bad for us. And it's, it's, it's really stuck. You know, when we consider people to be overweight, we call them fat. We don't call them carby or proteiny, we call them fat. So we associate this, this important macronutrient with being overweight. Low-fat food has become a huge, huge business as well. Um, and it's no wonder that companies like Slimming World and Weight Watchers and the like market their own low-fat range of foods to capture this vulnerable but big market. Uh, An organisation called the Transparency Market Research estimated that the low-fat food business was worth 6.5 billion euros in 2013. And that very probably has gone up since then. So it's big, big business. Not just the, um, the weight loss companies, but all food manufacturers want to capitalise on that desire to strip out the fat from food and market it as a healthy option. And it very often isn't, and I'll come to that. But it isn't just, to come back to that study, it isn't just that people aren't getting enough dietary fat now, it's that they're over-consuming low-fat foods. That's another problem. So in thinking that that low-fat food is healthy, because that's how it's marketed to us, people are over-consuming it. And studies have found also that people are over-consuming refined carbs because they're trying to get away from dietary fat. So there's almost like a double bubble, consuming low-fat foods. And the reason that's a problem is that in order to strip out the fat, it's got to be replaced with something to give it taste and texture. And that something is usually sugar. So there's a double whammy, a perfect storm going on here, if you like. If you're avoiding low, uh, fat in food, you're over-consuming low-fat foods, which contain sugar, and you're probably over-consuming refined carbohydrate as well, which also is a sugar. So that's why that, that's a problem. Back to Ansel Keys. He was accused of a number of things and still is being accused of a number of things. Uh, these are quite big accusations, but there may well be something in it. He's been accused of causing the obesity epidemic. He's been accused of the soaring rates of cardiovascular disease because people are aiming at the wrong thing. Uh, they're mistakenly thinking by avoiding fat they're avoiding uh, the risk of cardiovascular disease. He's been accused of helping the pharmaceutical industry generate billions and billions of pounds. And one thing I think he is guilty of is he has programmed us to fear fat and cholesterol. So his, his hypothesis has been nicknamed the diet heart hypothesis or the lipid hypothesis. And it all came from work that he did uh, where he sourced from seven countries where he plotted the incidence of heart attacks against fat consumption. So very simply, he drew a line across fat consumption and the incidence of heart attacks across seven countries, and then drew the correlation from that, and I'm simplifying, but only a little, drew the correlation 
from heart attacks to fat consumption. If the country consumes a lot of fat and it has a lot of heart attacks, it must be fat that's the reason for that. And didn't take that hypothesis any further. So that's the diet heart hypothesis that is still to a degree stuck with us. From a political perspective, that hypothesis was then adopted by the USDA, the AMA, uh, the American Diabetes Association, uh, so the AMA is the American Medical Association, the American Diabetes Association and the American Heart Association. So all these big governmental associations took his hypothesis and then it informed the, uh, the type of communication they sent out to the American people. And that obviously came across to us as well because we adopted much of that thinking. Now part of the problem is that with this um, parentheses hypothesis was that actually he didn't look at seven countries, he looked at 22. But there were seven countries that matched, that if you like, fit his hypothesis. So that was as far as the communication and the study went. Seven countries where we've got a clear relationship between fat consumption and heart attacks, therefore my hypothesis is, is true. I've proved it. And we've never really shaken off the idea that fat is bad. Um, despite the irony being that low fat contains high sugar and there are serious health implications around that. And therein lies the problem with the diet heart hypothesis. So let's talk a bit about the energy content of, of the macronutrients. So the three macronutrients, there is fat, carbohydrate and protein. Fat contains nine calories per gram and fat's predominantly an, an energy source. It's also there to absorb vitamins, so certain vitamins are fat soluble. And it's there to add taste and texture to our food. If you take fat out, food does not taste that good. Hence why it's then, uh, uh, um, has sugar added to it to give it that taste and texture. So that's the predominant responsibility of fat, but it is the most calorie dense macronutrient with nine calories per gram. Carbohydrates has four calories per gram, and it's also an energy source. And we store that in the muscles, the fat and the liver. And it's argued that the carbohydrate is the body's preferred energy source. And what happens when we ingest carbohydrate is there's an enzyme in our saliva that immediately starts breaking it down into glucose. So by the time it gets into the stomach, it's ready to be converted into energy. And the pancreas then releases insulin, which binds to that glucose and takes it down to the muscles until they're full. Then it takes it to the liver. And when that's full, it stores excess carbohydrate as a subcutaneous fat, so in our fat cells. So it's an energy source and it's the body's preferred energy source, but we can also burn fat as efficiently. And in fact, without going into the, um, the detail of which, which energy source we burn at, at which intensity of exercise, pretty much the body is, is good at figuring out whether it's gonna burn fats or carbohydrates, and it's never just one over the other. Even though it will go to carbohydrate in the presence of carbohydrate, the body will switch to fat burning at certain intensities or durations of exercise. And the final macronutrient is protein. And that's responsible for growth and maintenance, particularly of our muscles, but also for it has a, a play on our hormones. It plays into the immune system and it's there to help us produce enzymes. So each of those macronutrients are really important. But the body wants and needs fat. It's a really stable energy source. Um, I use fat-based uh, gels like Chia, Chia Energy Gels, for example. I use that for the London Marathon this year. It's a more stable energy source because carbohydrates um, can have a very up and down effect with your energy. And I'll come on to that later on. But fat is a little bit more of a stable energy source. The other problem with using glucose-based uh, energy gels, for example, if you do do sport and exercise, 
is that you'll end up getting a dodgy stomach after a while or a dodgy back end in fact because there's just too much glucose in the stomach they're really saturated really dense source of glucose now if you need a fast hit of carbohydrate then you've got it but at some point during an endurance event for example you're going to come back down from that that glucose hit fat will give you more stable energy now the other aspect of what Ansel Keys uh, dictated is also around cholesterol and for those of you who are sort of 20, 30 upward, you'll, you'll also remember that it was not only a drive to uh, disrespect fat um, and get that out of our diet, but also to be very wary of cholesterol. There was the whole eggs and cholesterol scandal. And there's still a little bit of residual resistance, I think, to cholesterol that's, that we haven't yet eradicated. But the body needs cholesterol. It's absolutely vital for things like cell membranes. So the membrane of the cell, the protective membrane of our cells, for our brain cells, uh, it helps us to make hormones like estrogen, progesterone, testosterone, and we need it for fat-soluble vitamins as well. So fat and cholesterol, very, very important for the body. We absolutely need that. Both forms of cholesterol as well. There are two forms, HDL, hypo-density um, lipoprotein, and LDL, which is low-density lipoprotein. Uh, HDL gets the nickname good cholesterol, LDL gets the nickname bad cholesterol, but they're both needed. Um, but in the right ratios and the right proportions. There are diets like the Atkins diet and the ketogenic diet, which include high levels of fat and low levels of carbohydrate. And a lot of people have had good success on those diets. Um, I personally haven't followed an Atkins or a ketogenic diet. I play around with my carbohydrate intake because I know through a DNA test that I'm highly sensitive to carbohydrate. And what that basically means is two things. One, as soon as I ingest carbohydrate, because of my sensitivity, I rapidly convert it to glucose, so I get a quick instant hit, but that will come with a corresponding dip in energy levels. So if I want to maintain stable energy levels and blood sugar levels, which are pretty much the same thing, I will have minimal carbohydrate, or certainly refined carbohydrates. But the other thing that will happen for me with my high sensitivity to carbs is that I will store excess carbohydrate as, saturated, sorry, as subcutaneous fat. So I need to be wary of those two things. Um, a high carbohydrate diet will elicit a high insulin response, which I touched on earlier. So there'll be lots of insulin in the blood. It encourages fat storage. It can cause you wobbly energy levels. So a sort of up and down blood sugar spikes that we really want to avoid. Puts quite a lot of sugar into the body. So there is a, a strong argument that having a diet with higher levels of fat will give you more stable energy levels. But it's worth looking at your sensitivity to both fat and carbohydrate so that you can get that aspect of personalised nutrition really right for you. And aside from a DNA test, you can also do an elimination test. So simply try yourself on a lower carb, higher fat diet and see how you feel. Maybe you agree a few um, measurables. So I'm going to look at my energy, I'm going to look at how I feel, I'm going to look at my sporting performance, whatever it is, so that you can measure how do I feel out of 10 now and how do I feel out of 10 two weeks into a higher fat, lower carbohydrate diet, for example. And that way you can just figure out whether this works for you or not. The best advice in very general terms is to lower the amount of refined carbohydrates you have and increase your fats. Most people are just not consuming enough fat in their diet. And trying out the foods that I'm going to read out to you in a second is just going to do you no harm at all if they're all part of a balanced diet. So try this, try lowering your refined carbohydrate when I talk about carbohydrate, I am not including vegetables in that. They are carbohydrate, but you can't really eat enough vegetables. So we'll come on to that. But increasing the fats in your diet can be done pretty simply by eating avocado. 
seeds, in particular chia seeds that I mentioned earlier. Dark chocolate, um, it's difficult to eat lots of dark chocolate, but as long as you're, you're pretty safe around that, then dark chocolate's a good source of fats, also polyphenols, also antioxidants. So a couple of squares of dark chocolate, no problem. Nuts, good source of fat as well, but be careful not to have too many of those. Olive oil, coconut oil, very good sources. Cheese, if you're not lactose intolerant. Eggs are a great source. Fatty fish, full fat yogurt, again, if you're not lactose intolerant. All of that is great sources of fat. So I really recommend trying to include more of that in your diet and bring the, the volume of refined carbohydrate down. That's absolutely important. So what to do? What to do about fat and getting more of that in your diet and some just broader principles as well around healthy eating. Here is what I would suggest. Avoid low fat at all costs. As you've already heard by now, once or twice, it's full of sugar. Low fat simply means increased amounts of sugar. Just turn the packet round and look at the nutritional advice and you'll see evidence of that. Don't fall into that trap of buying this fatty diet, low fat food. Look at your vegetable consumption and try and get that to anything between five and 10 portions a day. And a little tip for you there is try and get some vegetables into your morning smoothie or have a morning smoothie. Uh, the one that I do is not packed full of vegetables, but I have spinach, I have kale, I put in a small banana, some blueberries and some chia seeds and then fill that up with coconut water and blend it in the Nutribullet. Absolutely delicious. Um, you can sweeten it up a little bit with some fresh mint. That's really good. And um, that's a nice mixture of, um, of some protein, some carbohydrates, some fats in there. And that holds me for a few hours if I haven't got anything super intense to do in the morning. But that's one way of getting a couple of portions of vegetables in straight off the bat. And your body will thank you for that. Then you've just got to, look, got to look at getting between three, five or eight portions in for the rest of the day. So maybe a salad at lunch, some vegetables on your plate in the evening. And I'll tell, talk you through what a typical meal looks like for, for me. And then you've got huge amount, huge amount of vegetables into your diet. Increase the amount of fruits you have to two or three a day, but English type fruits. So fruits or berries. Um, berries like blueberries, which I put in my smoothie are full of polyphenols. So I think they're great. But try not to have too many exotic type fruits because that has a lot of fructose in, which is a form of sugar. It's better than refined sugar, but it's still sugar nonetheless. And particularly if you're watching your, your body composition, then you want to be careful about how much fruit you have in your diet. So it's definitely not fruit and veg, it's veg and fruit in an eight to two ratio. Include oily fish twice a week. Oily fish is great for omega-3, so you've got some nice fats in there. Oily fish is salmon, mackerel, sardines, that type of thing but just twice a week, increasing to any more than that, um, you run the risk of consuming a lot of mercury, which is sadly in the fish um, and other kind of metals. So oily fish just twice a week. Meat twice a week. There's a fatty, uh, fatty food like lamb, which you could include if you're not keen on lamb. Just having good, good organically sourced, ideally locally sourced meat. Plenty of water, minimal sugar, minimal refined carbs and if you follow that broad principle then you're going to be in pretty good shape lots of good fats in that um, and minimal refined carbohydrate um, typical meal for me uh, an evening meal will be a plate of food um, majority vegetables so a good two-thirds vegetables some of those might be roasted uh, there'll be a bit of sweet potato in there particularly if i'm feeling tired um, because that can have a positive effect on cortisol it raises cortisol slightly um, I'm sorry, it raises insulin slightly and depresses cortisol, which is what I want at the end of the day. Um, I will then have a piece of organic fish or organic meat. 
and that's usually it. So small amount of sweet potato because it has a good effect on, on pushing down my cortisol levels, which I want at the end of the day. Loads of vegetables, roasted and green. So kale, spinach, broccoli, and a good piece of meat, a good piece of fish. And that's, that's usually what I have most evenings. Um, by the end of the day, um, whoever's cooking, we don't want to make a lot of decisions. We want to keep it simple. So we tend to have the same kind of meal. Just reduces that decisional fatigue, which can scupper you on your good intentions. Um, I'd urge you to consider how you eat as well. So think about your mental state while you're eating. Eat mindfully, consider the digestive process and give your body the opportunity to absorb all the nutrients that you're consuming. When you eat quickly, there's a lot of evidence to suggest you're not absorbing all the vitamins and minerals. So great to eat mindfully, just slow it down. Uh, your gut is known as part of the enteric nervous system and it's nicknamed the second brain. In fact, I interviewed Dr. Becca Moore recently who said, who challenged me on it and said, actually, you're, you know, some people will tell you it's the first brain. So this is really profound link between the gut and the brain. So it's worth spending a lot of time thinking about what you're putting into your gut and your stomach and thinking about how that's communicating back with the brain and giving your brain what it needs to be cognitively sharp and energized. A uh, good idea just to practice some breathing exercises before eating, relaxing your body with good posture. You can prepare the body for food by enjoying the smells of cooking. So actually the body and the brain is preparing your stomach for food before it's even ingested any. And you'll know this if you've ever walked past a bakery and you've, you've smelt the smell of croissant cooking in the oven or something. What happens is you'll start to salivate. So already the brain has made that connection between the smell of food, so it's increased the amount of saliva in the mouth in preparation for eating, and it's, it's also warning the stomach, communicating with the stomach to say food is on its way. So it's incredibly powerful, that link. And the final point on that is think about where the food has come from. You know, a lot of us don't say grace anymore, but one of the objectives of that was just to think about the provenance of the food, to be grateful for it, to be mindful of what you're eating. And I think irrespective of your religious um, beliefs, just spending a bit of time thinking about the food you've eaten can be really powerful, really, really a good opportunity to think mindfully about what you're eating, what you're putting into your gut, what you're putting into your stomach, what's communicating, how that food is communicating with the rest of your body. Um, and final point, I think, on personalising your diet. I just want to leave you with this as well, because this is, I think, a really important um, aspect of eating something that's really unique to you. So we talk about increasing fat, but the how much really depends on your sensitivity and your, your needs, as we spoke about, what's your energy demands. Um, but think of your diet as this, make it personal. So do some testing, if you can afford to do testing and you're curious, or follow your intuition, listen to your gut. Um, is it telling you actually I like these foods? Or are you finding you have a bad reaction to certain carbohydrates or certain types of fat? Perhaps you're just eating not enough or too much of those as well. If you suspect you've got allergies or insensitivities, then get tested. It's very easy to do that now. Don't think in terms of calories, think in terms of nutrients. That is the important thing. The calories are almost irrelevant. Um, avoid fatty diets, focus on your goals and your body, and don't fall into the trap of thinking that one size fits all. What worked really well for me won't necessarily work for you. What worked well for my mum might not work for you. What works for you may not work for me. So it's very, very personalised. Flex your energy intake with your energy expenditure. Just keep an eye on that. If you're having a week where maybe you're injured or you're tired or you're just taking your foot off the gas, you're on holiday, you might need to temper the amount of energy intake to correspond with the reduced energy intake or the other way around. If you've got an event coming up or your energy expenditure is high, then flex your energy intake accordingly. Eat more of the right things. 
So what does my, my kind of diet look like? Well, I've had some testing, but I, um, I've also tweaked it intuitively and just over time as well. So, I mean, I'm lactose intolerant. I'm highly sensitive to carbohydrate. I eat a predominantly plant-based diet. Few fruits, some berries. Um, I'm alcohol-free. I have minimal amount of sugar, refined carbohydrate a week. So I actually operate a token system for refined carbohydrate, which has worked really well for me. So three times a week, I will allow myself that something that's very sugary or very refined carbohydrate-like. So pan au chocolat will be one. Um, maybe a chocolate bar that isn't dark chocolate, 85% plus cocoa. Um, I will have that. So three times a week. That works really well for me because I find it's permissive. I can have it. I've got three tokens I can use a week. But it does make me think twice about having something that I'm not really keen on having. So I won't waste those tokens. I'll eat meat twice a week. Um, we try and locally source if we can or certainly know that the provenance of the meat and that it's organic. And fish twice a week, equally organic. Everything um, I buy is organic. So that's how I personalise my diet. Um, yes, I've done some testing, but a lot of this you can do through intuition and just trial and error as well. Maybe you eliminate certain foods and bring it back in to see how well you get on with them. That's a good one to do for gluten and lactose. Um, I hope that's been helpful. Uh, thank you for listening through this far. If you've got any questions or any feedback, come directly to me, Leanne, L-E-A-N-N-E, at bodyshopperformance.com. And if you're interested in finding out what your health IQ is, jump on the website, www.bodyshopperformance.com. And on the homepage, you'll see what's your health IQ, take our test, click there. It's a two minute quiz and we'll give you some guidance at the end of it on what areas of the six signals you should improve on. The six signals are sleep, mental health, energy, body composition, digestion and fitness. So thank you again for listening. Um, let us know your questions, your feedback and have a great week. Thanks for listening to the show. If you've enjoyed what you've heard, help us to reach more people by leaving a rating and a review on iTunes. We would really appreciate that and it would help us to spread the good word even further. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you on the next show.